0: Why don't you uh, get your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read verse 18 down to verse 25. This is God's word. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let's pray together before we begin. God, I pray right now that we would enjoy the presence of your Holy Spirit um, as he makes clear to us what it is you are revealing here in this book. I pray that somehow we would have a heart and a mind to grasp both the foolishness and the power of the gospel. That we would be yielded to all that you have um, laid out as ridiculous as it sounds to our senses, that we would embrace it and receive and experience and know the true power that you have displayed in the gospel and on the cross for our sake and for our salvation and for your glory. We love you and we praise you. Uh, Open us up, Lord Jesus, before your word. cut through our hearts, our sin, our distractions, our tiredness, our stress, our anxiety, all of those things, um, and speak clearly to us uh, this afternoon. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to take the next several weeks uh, to look at uh, the core values of this church. We talked a lot about these values early on. Uh, We reviewed them a little bit during our Life Together study uh, last summer. Uh, We've mentioned them here and there over the last couple of years, but we want to um, circle back, and we want to do this regularly enough. We want to circle back, dive in, and consider and reconsider together what we believe God has called us to be all about. Simply put, we are about the gospel. We put it right in our name for a reason. In fact, our whole name, though it sounds uncreative and unimaginative, describes our identity and our mission pretty clearly. Boise Gospel Church. We are... A church, unashamedly so, we are a church that is about the gospel and is for our city. And so these five values, the the reason we have them um, is to help ensure that that statement is always true. And it puts the gospel in the center of everything that we are and everything that we do. So in case you're new or you're unfamiliar, our five values, and you'll notice too, um, you can maybe see if you can locate them on the front of your bulletin, Uh, But our five values are this. The cross. Because more than anything else, we believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The family. We believe in life together with the family of God that we have been saved into. Then Boise and beyond Boise. Those are two values, Boise and beyond. Uh, We believe that we've been given a mission to make disciples of all nations, a mission that extends to the ends of the earth and to all nations. And that we also have a unique place in that mission by having been particularly located and called to this city of Boise. And lastly, we believe in simplicity more as a philosophy of ministry. But the first value we're going to consider is the cross. If the gospel is the center of the church, then the cross is the center of the gospel. The cross is not just a plot twist in a bigger story, it is the culminating act of God's rescue plan for humanity. And I believe you could also say that the cross is where we see and the fullest revelation of God himself. By that I mean, you want to understand God's justice? Look at the cross. You want to see God's mercy and the extent of his mercy? Look at the cross. You want to understand God's holiness? Look at the cross. God's wrath? The cross. God's forgiveness? The cross. How much, how much does God hate your sin? Look at the cross. How much does God love you? Look at the cross. How does God save you and purchase you and make you His? The cross. You want to understand grace? The cross. You want to know what sin is doing to the world? The cross. Do you want to know what the world needs? The cross. How can we ever expect and hope to enter into the presence of God and experience the presence of God? The cross. Because so, if we don't have this first value, if we don't have the cross, then we don't have the gospel, and we aren't a church, and all the other values don't actually matter. So as you see on there, all of the values as they're represented all have the cross in them. They're not separate from the cross. The cross is the middle and the core and the center of everything that we do. Uh, before we explore this passage in Corinthians a little closer, I want you to listen to a statement from Paul in Galatians 6.14. Okay, just listen. He says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything. Those are some very emphatic words. I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wild statement to make, right? Paul refuses to brag about anything except the cross of Jesus. I mean, think about all the things. Think about all the things that we like to to boast in. I, I am, for one, am a bragger. Okay? On any given day, you will find me boasting about my wife, my sons, this church, a good movie, solid music, fruity pebbles, I was doing it just a couple days ago, <laughs> breakfast burritos at Big City Cafe, the absence, the complete absence of traffic in Southeast Boise, sorry everybody else, that I can walk to the Boise River, and unfortunately, more than I wish was true, my own self, my own ideas their own opinions, their own accomplishments. But how often is it that the boasting out of our lips is, I will boast about nothing. Another translation could be, I will not glory in anything. Right? I will not bask joyfully in the glow of anything but the cross of Jesus. Or maybe, I will not rest in the cool shade of any tree but the one on which my Savior was cursed and died. There's a a kind of irony. I hope you're seeing it. There's a kind of irony in Paul's statement and in saying it that way. Because boasting and glorying are expressions of joy and pride, right? And Paul is finding that joyful pride in nothing but the humiliating death of his savior and his king. This is the irony. This is the gospel. And it's a paradox. Our highlight is a crucifixion. Our victorious moment is when our hero king is rejected, abandoned, mocked, beaten, spit on, cursed, hung, forsaken by God, and dies. And to people in every era, not just this current one, but every era throughout all of humanity's humanity's existence, to all of those people, this is foolishness. This does not make any sense. And so here we come, then, to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, starting in verse 18. We have both that the word of the cross, is what it says, for the word of the cross is both foolishness and it is powerful. The word of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is understandably foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is also the power of God to us who are being saved. It's Foolishness and power. Not just generally so, it is both too foolish, too foolish for sinful men, yet it is the very power of God. It doesn't say it is a powerful expression of God. It doesn't say that it is uh, a one of the ways in which God is powerful. It says that it is the power of God. You cannot get further apart on the spectrum of descriptions. It is beneath sinful man and it is the full expression of God's power. I'm convinced that we will not grasp the full power and the beauty of the gospel if we do not see it as this kind of wild paradox. We must embrace the gospel as both utterly absurd and the actual power of God himself to us. Unfortunately, unfortunately our evangelism has turned into attempts at making the gospel as logical, reasonable, or palatable, or even appealing as possible. In fact, we will often share the gospel if we share the gospel, and that's a big if, if we share the gospel. We will only share it when we can share it in a way that is anything but foolish. But Paul is clear here that the gospel is both offensive and it is foolish. The cross of Jesus is not out to satisfy man's wisdom. It will not pass anybody's intellectual tests. It won't even enter into those tests. It doesn't bow to man's philosophy or engage in man's debates. It doesn't fit into or support man's version of the truth. The cross ends, as it says here, starting in verse 20. I'm sorry, before that, in in quoting in Isaiah in verse 19. The cross ends man's wisdom. It silences all the arguments. And it does so by creating a new upside-down philosophy where things like the last will be first can, can actually be true and actually be life-giving because the cross brings us to the only truth that can save us and it's not a truth that we could have concocted or discovered on our own. I understand and appreciate the value. Maybe some of you, do, maybe some of you are drawn to and like apologetics. And I understand the value of good apologetics and philosophy and philosophy the need to know how to defend our faith. And Paul himself reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues, and, and he describes our ministry as ambassadors in 2 Corinthians as, as a ministry of persuasion. We're trying to convince people of something. We are engaging them in thoughtful dialogue. And our hope is that they will hear the gospel and that they will respond to it appropriately with repentance, and they will believe it, and they will be saved. So reasoning is, is good. But if it causes us to forget the absurdity of the gospel then I believe we are missing out on actually the true, where the true power of the gospel lies. What this means is that you cannot and you will not reason anyone into the kingdom. And by that I mean, if you, if you believed or you're hoping that your neighbor will believe the gospel because, quote, it makes sense or, or that is reasonable, then who is yielding to who? Are you yielding to Christ? Are they yielding to him and his glory and his sovereignty? Or have you attempted to make Jesus yield to your senses and your reason? Has your wisdom ultimately been the the final hurdle that Jesus needs to clear in order to save you? Because that won't work. So what does God do? Read in verse 21. Since the world could not know God through through wisdom, that is, they could not know God through man's wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. See, God doesn't God doesn't enter into man's debates. Instead, while the world rages and searches for signs and wisdom on their own terms, God delights to save those who are willing to believe foolishness. Do you hear that? He doesn't say that we've been saved by a beautiful and reasonable and lovely, believable message that happened to be preached foolishly or by foolish people. That's not what he said. He said, he was pleased to, to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. It's actually the absurdity of the content of the message that we've believed that has saved us. The gospel is absurd. I want you to try this sometime. Try to articulate the absurdity of the cross. Try to describe what is happening without embellishing or exaggerating, but by stating as plainly and unashamedly ridiculous as you can. I think, if you, if you catch my drift, and I'll give you an example, I think it's actually sort of a worshipful experience, if you ask me. Okay, But this is my, here's my attempt. This is the absurdity of the Gospel. We claim that around 2,000 years ago, on top of a hill, at a very particular time, in a very unspectacular place, the eternal creator of all things, who had been born, to a poor underage virgin in an animal stable, who became a man while somehow never ceasing to be God, who never did a sinful thing or had a sinful thought in his life, who was followed by losers, who was subsequently abandoned by those same losers, who was betrayed by his own people, who suffered an unfair trial, was hung naked on a cross, somehow shouldering the weight and judgment of all of my sin and all of the world's sin, past, present, and future, was forsaken by the father who he had until then mysteriously been eternally one with, and so he died. And because he died, and because he was forsaken, we don't have to face the judgment, the punishment of eternal separation from God and death that our sins deserve. And furthermore, I know this is true because he rose from the dead on the third day after having been wrapped and buried in a tomb, and then he showed himself to his loser followers who had previously abandoned him. That's perfectly reasonable, right? Like what human philosophy or wisdom does that stack up to? Are you going to go into a debate with Richard Dawkins with that, like in your back pocket? This is this is it. This ends the debate. No, it doesn't. It shouldn't. But if you believe this, if you believe that message, you can be saved. That's our claim. That's what we're holding on to. And this is the word of the cross. This is the message that, the, that centers our church. And it's the reason we exist. It's what binds us all together and unifies us as a family. I've said this over and over. I love all of you. I love hanging out with all of you. I, that might not always be true. Um, there might, they might grow. There might People might come into the church that I actually don't like to hang out with. But this one, we really enjoy each other a lot. But the fact is, is that that's not why we're here. And, and, the, and the, when the time comes when that annoying person does into the church or, or someone, you know, turns a certain way or voices a certain political opinion that rubs you the wrong way, that's not the thing that holds us in here. We're not here because we like each other. We're not here because we're on the generally similar stages of life. We're here because we're clinging to this bizarre, unreasonable, outrageous claim that there's a God up there that created all of this and then entered in and died and that was our victory. That's when we won. So this is what we're all about is that claim. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on these five words in verse 23. Um, I think that these, I think these five words kind of hold the key to just explaining simply. We like simplicity, and this is as simple as it gets. Explaining all, everything that we are about is these five words in verse 23. But we preach Christ Crucified. What I'm going to do, I don't know if this is good exegesis or not, but we're just going to look at each of those five words because they're loaded. Okay? The first one is but. The words, it would be easy to say, we preach, capital W, beginning of the sentence, we preach Christ crucified, period. But that's not what Paul says. He says but. That, That statement is not a standalone statement. What we do by preaching Christ crucified stands in contrast to something. That's what the but means. Okay? So read verse 22. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Now while it seems like Paul is distinguishing between Jews and Greeks, he isn't. In fact, he's he's linking them together. When he says Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, there's nothing important about the difference between saying asks for and seeks. He's pointing to the same thing. He's saying Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Paul isn't trying to make a contrast. He's unifying the two and saying that what makes Jews and Greeks the same What makes all people the same is that everyone is seeking. Jews were specifically looking for a Messiah, for a Savior, but so were the Greeks. So is everyone. Everyone is experiencing brokenness and suffering and sin, and so all people are looking for a Savior. You could say all people have a Savior complex. They're all looking for something to deliver them from what they know is broken. Whether it's outside of them or inside of them, something's amiss. And ever since Adam looked anywhere but to God, mankind has always looked in the wrong places. Or even when they looked in the right places, they twisted it and got that wrong too. So what are some of the saviors that our world claims? Pleasure, money, education, careers, achievements, the American dream, politics, yoga, sports, marriage, kids, the perfect family, better things than the neighbor, good works, charity, church, Maybe some just want to be saved from boredom or bad health or loneliness or depression, but everyone knows that something is wrong and everyone is seeking to be saved. And it's in this reality that Paul says, but we preach. Notice, he doesn't throw us into the same mix. If Jews and Greeks are the same because they're seeking, we are not. He doesn't say, but we uh, seek Jesus and his kingdom, or but we seek community, or we seek love. Or we seek acceptance, or justice, all of those might have sounded really good, and we would have just breezed right past that passage and not thought of thing of it. But we aren't seeking. That's the first hint that we've got an absurd message. While every person in every era, every generation from the beginning of human, human's existence, every great thinker, teacher, philosopher, scientist has sought answers and meaning and salvation from the woes of the world, we're not looking. We're not seeking. We found it. We're not looking for a savior like everyone else because we found him. That's what makes us different. That's the beginning of our absurd message. The second word is we. We'll talk actually more about this next week when we talk about the family. But the message of the cross forms and it comes to and it comes through a we. Paul doesn't say, but I preach Christ crucified. And he's actually, if you, look at, if you look in the context, he's not saying we as in, we apostles have been preaching this. And you need to hear that. He, he says at the beginning, but is the, the gospel is the, the foolishness of the cross, sorry, is also the power of God to us who are being saved. He's talking about all those who have responded to the gospel and are being saved by the power of God. And he's saying, but us, but we preach Christ crucified. So it doesn't mean that it's my job or anyone else's job, to preach the gospel. It's, it's our job. This is a, a community effort. Third word is preach. We preach. The gospel and the word of the cross is not good advice. And it's not therapeutic background music. It is good news. It's a story. It's an event that has to be told. It has to be described because of how absurd it is. There's this famous... I a misquote floating around in the Christian ether. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and it says, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Okay? I can tell you for sure it is baloney, and Francis never said it. I understand that some believe that sharing the gospel with words is for only a select few gifted evangelists and pastors, and instead most believe that it's their job to live the gospel by example. That sounds like a beautiful idea, but if there is anything that we will always fail to do, always, it is to live the gospel clearly. Why? Because the gospel is centered on a cross and a death. And the fact is very few of us will ever go so far as to actually lay our life down for anybody. And so that means our, our example of the cross, of the gospel, will always fall short. And why should we think that there is anything of the same power or even close to the same power in our incomplete display of the gospel than there is in telling people about the one whose life and actual death is the gospel. Obviously, I'm not saying that we shouldn't live the gospel. Our whole life, from the works of our hands to the words of our mouth, all of those things must bear witness to the gospel. To preach in this way is really to profess it's to profess a truth, not just something that we've heard about. It's not just a message like, hey, I heard this thing happened and I want to tell everybody. It's to pr- proclaim a truth that has affected us, that's changed us, that we've received, that we've claimed ourselves. Remember we talked about um, uh, Philip, the, the, the uh, disciples, when Jesus called those two disciples and, and then one of them ran and got his brother and said, look, we found him. We found the Messiah that we've all been waiting for and looking for. And, and he responds with what you would expect to respond when someone brings you foolish news. He says, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know what I mean. He makes a joke and dismisses this ridiculous idea. And he just says, come and see, right? And we talked about this, that he was, saying, he was saying, he wasn't saying, go and check it out. He wasn't saying, I don't know for sure. I just heard this whisper, you know, go see for yourself. He said, no, come and see. Come with me, because I've already been there. I've experienced this. I've seen it. And I want you to come with me and join me in, in seeing and knowing this Jesus. So that's what, this, that's what our life should be. Our life should testify to the reality of the transformation that we are claiming when we, when we share the gospel when we speak of the truth of this absurd thing. Preaching the gospel is certainly more than just speaking, but it is never less. The fourth thing is, is Christ, but we preach Christ. We aren't offering a better philosophy Morality. We aren't inviting people to come and see our good works or our successes or the way that God has blessed us because we read the Bible and go to church. We preach a person and we preach a relationship with that person. We are inviting people to come and see Jesus. And while the world seeks their own way and their own truths and autonomy over their own life, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as he says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Peter says something similar in Acts 4.12. He says, there is salvation in no one else. That's in Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. This is the single focus and the simplicity of the gospel. This is largely what we mean when we say that as a church we are committed to simplicity we'll talk about more in a few weeks. It's not a particular aesthetic or style. It is a singular focus on Christ and nothing else. And the last word is crucified. It would have been, again, you might catch this from my style of preaching as I oftentimes like to think about what he doesn't say because I realize sometimes that we misinterpret things And sometimes we can even hear ourselves saying things that Paul might have said, but he didn't say. He he didn't say, but we preach Christ. Generally. I'm not saying that these aspects of Christ aren't important, or that they don't actually help us to know him fully and, and know what it meant fully for him to be crucified. But Paul didn't say, we preach the love of Christ or we preach the acceptance of Christ, or we preach the forgiveness of Christ, or the mercy of Christ, or even Christ risen, or even Christ enthroned. He said, we preach Christ crucified. I, I actually think, and I, hopefully it's obvious, that all of those things are wrapped up and, and known by and in and through the cross of Jesus. But it's, and it's not that the cross itself is the sum total of the gospel, but it is that the cross centers the gospel. And actually it centers all of scripture. So we believe that scripture itself revolves around the cross. It either points to it, anticipates it, gets us ready for it, or it flows out of it with all the new realities and the new life that is created in its wake. So we want to be a gospel-centered church that is for Boise. But we can't be for Boise or for each other, for that matter, if our gospel is not Cross-centered. So, simply, joyfully, confidently, foolishly maybe, we preach Christ crucified. Nothing else. In a minute, um, I'm going to wrap it up right here. We'll pray in a second. But I just wanted to preface this because we're going to sing a song um, at the end. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but it's one of my favorite little hymns. Because it's about the future hope that we have of seeing Jesus face to face. One of my favorite, one of my favorite pictures is is the moment that Jesus approaches his disciples in the room where Thomas is doubting and questioning, and Thomas says, "You know, they're trying to tell him that Jesus he's alive. He rose." He says, "I won't believe it till I see it." And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He shows himself to him. This is the this is the risen and glorified body of our Savior. Right? I don't know what you imagine glorified bodies will look like. But Jesus had scars. He was able to say, here, you know, put your finger here, here, put your hand here, on my side. I know we think scars are like these ugly reminders of some wound, but some wounds are so beautiful that the scars themselves become beautiful reminders. I mentioned this this wasn't where this was going necessarily, but I mentioned this a few weeks ago on Mother's Day. You realize that you were born with a scar. Your belly button is the only scar you're born with. And as ugly as we might think it is, that's one of the most beautiful reminders of the fact that you depend, your life depended on somebody else. And you came through somebody else. Someone else's life was very literally laid down for you so that you could live. And so... I said I take a picture of my belly button and send it to my mom every Mother's Day, because, because it is because it's beautiful. You can't tell me that's not a beautiful, that's not a beautiful thought. My, it's not aesthetically beautiful, <laughs> but it, but it is. There's no, other, you, you weren't born with any other scars. That one you're born, you have at birth, and it, it's a reminder of, of things that are profoundly beautiful. And lovely. And so the fact that Jesus is gonna be there, and as the song says we'll sing, we're gonna know him, we're gonna see him by the scars on his hands, the ones that held him to the tree that ultimately were for us. We're our fault. I hope we're not gonna be sad or ashamed. I think we're gonna worship. I think we're gonna we're gonna look at those like, like I'm trying to do with my belly button, and we're gonna glory in these scars that are reminders of the life that we've received through him. The cross is that reminder, it's that ugly beauty, it's that foolish power, it's everything that our senses say is wrong and isn't right, and it's everything that is right, it's the only thing that is right. We want that to be the source and the subject of everything that we care about and do in this church. Let's pray.